Amen. What a blessing that song is. I love that verse. Guilty thief seeing his own sin and was redeemed. And there, though vile as he, my sins are washed away too. Amen. Thank you, Amy. Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you today to break open the Word of God, to fellowship together, to give, to pray, to sing, and all those things we've been able to do. Now we're going to open the Word of God to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if you do that. And for those who have little ones through grade 4, you can be dismissed now, if you'd like, downstairs to Children's Church. If you'd like to stay or have them stay with you, please feel free to do that as well. Whatever you're up to today, okay, parent, whatever you're up to, you can do it. And welcome back to many of our college students as you have begun to return to campus. We're glad that you're here. We've missed your faces. And we're glad that you're here worshiping again with us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. God's plan for a healthy church is study through the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians. In particular, insufficiency, a key to being useful to God. That's really our title. And a subtitle really is Sufficiency and the Power of the Gospel. That's a, new, that's a new section for us, and so in just a moment we'll just jump right in. If you've not been here with us and since we've gone into 2 Corinthians, really starting back in chapter 2, verse 12 and going forward, we have really tracked Paul dealing with a key, a very important issue of being useful to God. Something we desire, I would think. As we think about our lives as a believer, we would like to think that we can be useful to him. In some way, of course, he sufficiently supplies all of our needs to do all of those things, but we'd like to be useful. And so, knowing as we've tracked through that we are insufficient in our flesh to the tasks and decisions and requirements of the ministry, that's kind of what we've learned, that we are insufficient to those things. Paul often visits this very important point and uh, has had to learn that lesson himself. And we saw that early as we really set up this whole section Paul had to learn that when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul was afflicted after uh, a series of visions allowed him to see some things that no one else had been able to see. And he said that the Lord uh, took uh, and gave him some type of disability which would keep him humble. And that was very, I think that was very enlightening for us to see that Paul, someone such as Paul, would need that kind of thing to keep him relying on the sufficiency of Christ. And if Paul needed that, of course, how much more are we? So, Uh, That's what we've looked at, and so he has really tracked then from chapter 2, verse 12, really revealing how he operates in the crush of ministry, the difficulties and hardships, and and that really is where he found sufficiency in the leadership of Christ. That was the first several verses, starting in verse 12, and then the sufficiency of the Word of God, which we finished last week, and we talked extensively about that because of the nature of the pulpit these days and of teaching uh, to really move away from anything that's really based in the Word of God. Instead, use the Word instead of teaching the Word, uh, bringing your own agenda and then just using the Word to fill in around it, which we see as hucksterism, we see as adulterating the Word of God and flat out just misrepresenting it. And so we went through all those things. We're not going to go through those things again. I would encourage you to go back online and check in with all that. Twelve principles for insufficiency. We'll continue to add to those today, but we won't go back over the ones that we have finished. Now, here Paul is revealing his heart to the church. He openly admits his insufficiency in accomplishing uh, really anything in and of himself for the ministry, and then we'll begin to show his sufficiency in the power of the gospel. It's one of my favorites. The last, really the last um, portion of verse 3 gives us the key to the whole passage. We'll see that when we get there, but let's read the passage we're going to consider today. This is 2 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? 
or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? Verse 2, you are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Verse 3, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human hearts. Let's stop right there. Ministry, as you know if you've been in it, can be intimidating, it can be unnerving, it can be discouraging, it can be daunting. So much so, in fact, that as we've worked our way through these, I think, two chapters, I hope, our chapter two in the last part of our second letter, Paul wondered who is equal to such a task. We, we see him say that often as we go through this second letter. So who is equal to such a task? Are we sufficient to those things? And of course, the answer to that rhetorical question is no one, no, we're not. And so we've seen as we continue that Paul reveals what sets true Christian ministers apart from false teachers of his day. And we're going to see that intrusion as we work through the second letter. Uh, those who are criticizing him, Paul is kind of isolating them uh, kind of pointing them out, the differences in their lifestyle and the one that he portrays to them. But every time he does that, it's misconstrued. Every time he says anything about uh, the nature of the ministry, what, what true biblical ministry looks like, what faithful ministry looks like, it's always construed to be Paul bragging on himself. And so constantly has to go back and say, look, I'm not sufficient. It isn't me who's doing this, those kinds of things to remind the church that he isn't, he isn't, um, he isn't bragging. And so we see Paul continue to reveal what, what sets that true minister apart and from those of his day, the false teachers, isn't fame, it isn't profit, it isn't success. Instead, it's finding sufficiency in the leadership of Christ. It's finding sufficiency in the Word of God. And as we'll look at today, sufficiency in the power of the gospel. And then finally, this section, we'll look at sufficiency as servants. And so it kind of makes that beautiful circle. We see that, uh, that servanthood that is key to all and, and really the thread that has to run through all the fabric of ministry. Now, look at verse 1 of our new section as we as our habit. We're going to jump in and just kind of work through verse by verse. Uh, letters of recommendation, of course, are are uh, common fare for us. We have needed them. All of us have needed them at some point in time. All of us have perhaps written them. I found one that may bring a smile to your face. It goes like this. This is an email that went out to whom it may concern. Trevor Adams, my assistant programmer, can always be found hard at work in his cubicle. Trevor works independently without wasting company time talking to his colleagues. Trevor never thinks twice about assisting fellow employees, and he always finishes given assignments on time. Often, he takes extended measures to complete his work, sometimes skipping coffee breaks. Trevor is a dedicated individual who has absolutely no vanity in spite of his high accomplishments and profound knowledge in his field. I firmly believe that Trevor can be classed as a high-caliber employee, the, the type that cannot be dispensed with. Consequently, I truly recommend that Trevor be promoted to executive management, and a proposal will be sent away as soon as possible, yours sincerely, Bill Davis. Right after that, another email was sent out, and Bill said, Trevor was looking over my shoulder while I wrote this recommendation. Please kindly reread only every second line. So I'll go back and read it. To whom it may concern, Trevor Adams, my assistant programmer, can always be found wasting company time talking to his colleagues. Trevor never finishes given assignments on time. Often he takes extended breaks. Trevor is a dedicated individual who has absolutely no knowledge of his field. I firmly believe that Trevor can be dispensed with. Consequently, I truly recommend that Trevor be sent away as soon as possible. Yours sincerely, Bill Davis. That's the one that you don't want to get, of course. Maybe the first one is the one you want to write or get. But Paul begins this next section with two questions that really relate to our illustration. Verse 1, he says this. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need... Or do we need 
as some letters uh, as some letters of commendation to you or from you. So the frustration of his heart comes through the question. Obviously, uh, at this point in the series, you've been exposed to the nature of some in the Corinthian church, and, and you know how they've treated Paul in the past, and the unspoken response from Paul is obvious. You know, all the years, all the conversations, all of the teaching, all of the preaching, all the fellowship, all the prayers, all the love, all the tears, all the difficulty, everything that I've shared with you, all of that doesn't mean anything, and now we're all the way back to the beginning, that's what you think I need, or that's what you think I'm doing. And we know that the answer to both of those questions is no, and that really leads us to the next principle from the passage. As you are, if you're a note taker, you'll find this on the back. This, this next principle for those who find insufficiency for the task of ministry is this. For those who find insufficient, their sufficiency in the gospel, they don't need affirmation from people. So, and Paul is obviously this example here as, as he labored inside the church, he, he uh, gave his life away constantly, he came to the firm understanding that he, he wasn't bound to, uh, to the affirmation of people. It's not this kind of reverse way of patting yourself on the back. You, he gives a message and people say that was really great and then that becomes this way that you self-affirm. Paul's just like, look, I don't, I don't need affirmation of others. My reputation isn't dependent on the testimony of others. It's not even dependent on my own words of commendation. So there's this very secure way of doing ministry found in sufficiency in the leadership of Christ, found in sufficiency of the word of God, here found in sufficiency of the gospel, that gives you quite a bit of peace. You kind of see Paul, uh, he's kind of revealing his heart. You know, obviously, um, this is not where I am, but Paul says, listen, you think this is how it is. And so when you think about Paul's position, it really doesn't matter what Paul said about his ministry and his authority. We saw that numerous times. It, you know, I have nothing to condemn myself as I look at my ministry, but that even that doesn't exonerate me. So as you look through Paul's ministry, you realize he just wasn't finding his affirmation inside what people said about him necessarily. I mean, obviously, it's nice when people say, hey, that was a blessing, or I learned a lot, or whatever, uh, but that's not the reason why you continue to do it, and it's not how you base your own understanding of whether you're effective or not. And so Paul says about his ministry, whatever he says about his authority, because whatever Paul's going to say is going to be construed as pride or haughtiness. However Paul comes to the church, and whatever he says about what he's done and accomplished, it's just going to be misconstrued. So Paul just doesn't put any, any reliance on whatever that feedback may be. Remember, he's coming off these statements. Look back at 2 Corinthians 2.14, if you would. I won't put a slide up. Just look back just a few verses. Chapter two, or 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Paul says this, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Uh, we looked at that, a marvelous illustration of this triumphal entry into Rome and what that would have looked like and smelled like. We won't go through that. Verse 15, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, verse 16, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? A rhetorical question, no one. I'm not adequate, Paul says, to bring the gospel somehow or rely on the word of God somehow to make sure it goes life to life or death to death. I can't discern those things. The Lord does that. For we are not like many, verse 17, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Now, he just got through saying that. Now, in the, the original letter, there is no chapter break. And so you won right off of that, Paul really evaluating that, uh, that uh, we're a fragrant aroma of him in every place, fragrance of Christ to God even, to the emperor as you think about the Roman procession, but a fragrance to Christ, of Christ to God as you find that sufficiency of the word among those who are perishing, death to death, aroma of life to life to those who live, who's adequate for these things. So Paul kind of sums up what's going on. We're like, not like many. I don't peddle the word, Paul says, you know, um, I do it from sincerity. We speak as from God. We speak in Christ in the sight of God. God stands there as a witness to what I'm doing. So he just gets through saying this, obviously misconstrued. 
And so Paul follows that up, and he suspects the statements are going to make look, look like he's bragging. Somebody's going to think he is so conceited, he's always thinking about how good he is or whatever, and it's like he's writing his own reference letter to draw attention to himself. That's the, that's the issue he's picking up. So as he gives that to the, he writes that in his letter, he knows the response from some is going to be, he's so conceited, he's so kind of, you know, kind of centering around himself. Now, to make sure that you understand, letters of introduction are not a bad thing, and we find them in the scriptures over and over. So I don't want you to think, Paul, just casting them in a negative light here just makes them all bad. Somehow all, they must all be bragging and they must all be arrogant or you know, they're all conceit. Because Romans chapter 16, and we looked at this many years ago when you were with us going through, if you were with us going through the book of Romans. But do you remember this? This, this is a letter that Paul wrote for a sister in Christ. And he says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. So already you know this is some kind of letter being carried by uh, uh, Phoebe herself, of course, and she's carrying this letter Paul has written to, uh, to this church in Rome. But inside of this letter Paul's written to the church in Rome is this uh, letter of commendation to Phoebe. And he says this, who is a servant of the church, which is at Centria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of, of, of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. So inside the letter that she's carrying that Paul wrote to uh, the Roman believers is this letter of commendation for her. So it's not a bad thing. And he just wants to make sure uh, that... Um, because she's carrying this, it, it, it completed and taken place, uh, taken to Rome, very special Christian lady by Phoebe, and, and, and why Paul, and this is why Paul commends uh, her to them. They don't know her, and so Paul wants to make this introduction, and so they, they'll have value and, and, and trust what she's doing, and interestingly enough, Paul's writing this letter from Corinth, okay, so uh, with all the trouble he's having in Corinth and all the difficulty he had and all, how to bring the church under control, he, he's penning this letter to the believers in Rome. So it just tells you Paul's heart is not just on Rome, it's on the other churches. And we know that, don't we? Because Paul says, and who, who has trouble uh, like I have and who's been, who's been uh, in peril on the deep and peril in rivers and peril from countrymen and all that. And besides all that, my daily concern for all the churches. Remember we read that? So Paul has this concern for all the churches. He writes this letter and he, he, inside this, he pins this letter of commendation. So she's traveling from Greece to Rome. That's a significant journey. And she arrives and they'll begin reading the letter and they'll get to this last section of this letter that we call the 16th chapter of Romans, and, and of course they'll see that she is, has Paul's praise and appreciation, and he has instructed them to treat her as one worthy of their hospitality and care and fellowship. So it's not a bad thing. And they're making sure that uh, the right relationship is established. And so right at the beginning, we see love, we see reliance, we see appreciation expressed, we see a lady who's trusted greatly, and he gives her this wonderful ministry. And we see it illustrated again uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 3. Do you remember this? At the, at the very end of 1 Corinthians 16, Paul's talking about uh, this collection he's taken up over the last year. And he says, when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I'll send with them letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. In other words, he's sending this collection that he's encouraged the churches to fund for over a year for the saints in Jerusalem. And we talked about this when we were in this chapter. And he is sending it along and he tells the church to pick up, uh, pick some people there in the church to take the gift to Jerusalem. And he tells them that he's going to write an introductory letter for each of the, uh, the, of the offering trustees, if you will, whoever the people who are carrying the money. Uh, he's going to write a letter so that the church in Jerusalem will know who they're dealing with and who they're interacting with. And we have then another illustration of it again, and we'll, we'll stop with this one. Acts chapter 18, verse 2, speaking about a guy named Apollos, and these are all connected to our passage, so I'm using this. Uh, I think we had that on the back one. 
Um, so I'm using this because this connects us. You remember Apollos, he followed up Paul. As Paul left, Paul, Apollos came. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, speaking of Apollos, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped them uh, who had believed through grace. So, so this is so that the saints will know to receive Apollos and to demonstrate uh, to him hospitality and not be fearful, but be respectful and, and, uh, and all of that. And, and, care, and they're responsible for his care and deal with him in grace. And he, and he proved his service. So he goes there and he greatly helped, Ephesus says, uh, he greatly helped those who were uh, new in the grace, in grace. So it's not a new practice, even in the first century. It's not wrong. We use it still. You may need it in the future. But it was intended, catch this, it was intended to bridge the gap uh, between people who didn't know one another. So obviously when Paul's using it here, he's casting it in a completely different light, isn't it? Because he knows them and they know him. So Paul finishes his comments on the sufficiency he has in the Word of God, and he understands the church so well, so he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves uh, again to you, or do we need as some letters of commendation or to you or from you? So here's the deal. You know, is that what you think I'm doing? So it's the compound verb commend, sunestimi. It's, it's the word soon, with or beside, and Histomy, which is to stand or establish. So present, active, infinitive. In other words, do we need to keep doing this? That's the question. You know, how long will this continue to go on that every time I talk to you about the church, I, you automatically assume that I'm giving you a letter or recommendation for myself or committing myself or patting myself on the back? Do you need someone to speak on my behalf? Do you think I'm bragging about my own abilities? That's the question. And so we see this the sorrow in Paul's heart. He has to go back here and say this again. And we're going to see this over and over and over again as he brings this up several times in the letter. This is a common occurrence. 2 Corinthians 5.12, we'll get here in a few weeks. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us. So in other words, he comes off saying something about the ministry and then says, I'm not committing myself again to you. Okay, I'm not bragging. I'm not patting myself on the back. So, so that you will have an answer to those who take pride in appearance and not at heart. Again, he begins to isolate the people who are giving him a hard time, people who are in there influencing negatively this church. And he says, listen, I'm not recounting to my bio to you so you can be impressed. He's, uh, I just take a sideways glance at the ones who are criticizing me and see what they think is important and see what I've taught you is important, right? They take pride in appearance and not at heart. They're more concerned about what's on the outside than what's on the inside. Again, we see it in 2 Corinthians 10, 12. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. So we're not the same as they are. People who think there's something there in the church, they're trying to draw attention to themselves, trying to, to sway you away from the true gospel and the true way of living. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're without understanding. So people who criticize me are a measuring rod unto themselves, Paul says. They're not concerned about the Lord's measuring rod. And again, then in verse 18, he says, For it's not he who commends himself that's approved, but he whom the Lord commends. So again, it's constantly in his mind what's going on in the church. He says, you know, it really doesn't matter what they think about themselves. It doesn't matter what I think about myself. He says, the one that the Lord commends, that's what matters. And so we come to our passage, and it's, it's funny and it's kind of sad uh, that uh, he has to answer in this way. And so he says, you think when I say what I just said, I'm writing my own reference letter? Do, do you want a letter? I'll give you a letter. Here it is. You are our letter. There's your letter. You're our letter. It wasn't an external document. It wasn't written with ink. It was an internal document. Written in lives that were changed and are being changed. Then he says, written, he says, in our hearts. That's how Paul feels about them, see. 
He loves them. Yes, there are people here who gossip about him. Yes, there are people who have continuously argued with them. This, this is the church that couldn't get communion right. This is the church where everybody had a prophecy and everybody had a tongue and, and, and the services were completely out of control. You know, this, this is the church where there were factions, there was divisions, and still he says, you are written in our hearts. And that word written is the, is the perfect passive verb in grapho. That's where we get our word engrave. Paul says, when those lives are changed, when they were, they were written by the Lord on the heart of Paul. So again, Paul's not measuring whether or not he's effective by necessarily these positive return from the congregation. He knows for certain that when people's lives were changed, they were written by the Lord on the heart of Paul, completed action. They are there from now on, regardless of the naysayers. You know, lives were changed and people were growing and maturing, and the Lord made that clear to Paul. And those words, in a similar sense, we find in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Bible explains the Bible. In Luke chapter 10, verse 20, he says this, Nevertheless, we do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Do you remember when the disciples came back, uh, and Luke is recounting this, and, and they said, even the demons are subject to us, and, and we can cast them out. And, and the Lord says to them, listen, don't rejoice in that, that the spirits are subject to you. That shouldn't be a surprise to you, in other words. I mean, you're my servant, and you do something in my name. All isn't subject to me. Don't, be, don't, be, don't rejoice in that, but rejoice that your names are, here it is, recorded. Same word, recorded. They're engraved in heaven, permanent. Because the Corinthians remain the Lord's, they're going to stand for all time as Paul's letter of commendation. And that's our next principle of those who find their sufficiency in the gospel. Those who find their sufficiency in the power of the gospel rejoice in the happy awareness that the Lord has used them to accomplish his plan of salvation. You know, when you think about the ministry that you do, don't be measuring necessarily what's going on from who you're ministering to back uh, in, a short, in the short term, Okay. Understand as you find your sufficiency in the gospel, just as, if just as when you find your sufficiency in the word of God. Understand this. Understand that, that as, as you minister through the gospel and the word of God, people's lives will be changed. And the Lord is writing that, engraving that on your heart. And that is yours forever. See, That's the, that's the, uh, that's the feedback, really, that you're looking for. Lives being changed. Nobody can, can deprive Paul of the wonderful joy of the fact that the Lord had an and employed him in bringing in part of the harvest. That's what you look for. Wherever he has to go, wherever he may minister, he has this internal witness from God, and this confidence remains unshakable. And, and what is written upon his heart can't be misinterpreted, can't be misunderstood, see? You know, they can't twist that around to mean something besides what it means, see? And like a love letter, beloved, written by someone dearest to you, Paul can take a look at that letter anytime he wants. Perhaps you have one from the past, and you can pull that out sometimes, and you can look at that, and it was written to you, and you never lose that. That's yours permanently. Paul can just use that anytime he needs encouragement, and no one can take that from him. And, and those are just delightful words from Paul. A real, a real, a really, it's a reveal of who Paul is in his inner thoughts. What is he thinking about all this? And, and as we read through second, the second letter, we're going to see some very unkind things Paul is going to recount that have been said. And we certainly saw it in 1 Corinthians. But Paul's not reacting to that, is he? He's just saying, listen, I don't, I don't need a letter of introduction for you, uh, to you, and nobody has to write one for me. You're our letter, written on my heart. And so that's very encouraging to those who labor for the kingdom and the sufficiency of Christ, really giving out the word, the gospel, to life.
That is your joy. And he also carried along by the Holy Spirit to point out, and it's very clear to everyone else, because the letter of redemption and, and spiritual growth that Paul can see, he says this, you are our letter written in our hearts. What's the last part? Known and read by all men. Known and read by all men. Everybody can see the letter. What kind of letter is on Paul's heart, inscribed there by the Lord? What kind of letter is visible and read by all men? Well, the first part of verse 3, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, see. And this is the key to the passage. As you think about sufficiency, sufficiency in the leadership of Christ, sufficiency in the Word of God, this is the key to this next section, and that's being manifested that you are a letter of Christ. Those that know, and this is this next principle for those who find their sufficiency here, those that know they are insufficient to the work of the ministry can count on the sufficiency of the gospel to change lives. Just like I, 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 I turned you back to the actual teaching of the Word of God and not your own thoughts and not kind of watering that down or somehow putting your own agenda in and filling in with the Word of God, I draw you back to the gospel too. The giving out of the gospel accomplishes what it's supposed to accomplish, life to life. And so it's the gospel that writes this letter. And, and this point recalls to our minds the sufficiency of the word of God. Paul says, I'm not writing a letter. I'm not dictating to you all of my attributes as if I'm something. No. This is a letter written by Jesus. Back in 1 Corinthians, Paul went over this, just, just as a footnote. And I love this passage, so I'm going to recall it to your mind. Paul says this, because it was always in his mind that his sufficiency was found in the power of God, or in his word, or in the leadership of Christ, or in the gospel. And, and here there's some wonderful words as he really kind of sets the stage as he, as he writes back to this church that he pastored for 18 months. He says this. There are a couple of wonderful illustrations here, and I want to, I want to touch on them. He says this in verse 5. He says, What then is Apollos, and what is Paul, servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one? Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Verse 7, so then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. In verse 8, now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So a couple of things to remember as it relates to your work of the ministry. Here it is. Number one, get your eyes back on Jesus. The human instrument is irrelevant, okay? As you think about your ministry, just get your eyes on Jesus. You are irrelevant as it relates to anything eternal, it goes right along, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I can't do it, the Lord can do it. When I find my sufficiency in Christ, who is sufficient for these tasks? Who is capable to do it? No one is. No one. It's the Lord through the individual. So, number one, get your eyes back on Jesus as Paul instructs the church. Listen, the human instrument is irrelevant. Pastors, ministers, they're just attendants like we saw last time. They are just um, under rowers, house managers. Those are the words used for those who teach the church. And then he says this, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. And number two, the only reason I was involved is because the Lord gave that opportunity to me. Okay? The Lord arranged that whole thing. That, is, that it was his plan to use someone who's insufficient to the task to bring about the giving out of the gospel. The only reason you came to Christ through me, this is Paul, is because the Lord works through the power of the gospel set loose from the word of God. That's the only reason, see? It had nothing to do with my anything in the flesh or anything I brought personally to the table. The only reason you have grown in your faith is because God is at work in you. The only reason you're, you're, you're a letter written permanently on our hearts and known and read by everyone who sees you is because Jesus is writing it. I'm just a tool. So this is not unusual for Paul to draw them back to this sufficiency in the Lord's work. And Paul really makes it clear in verse 6, and he uses an agricultural expression. Here's what he says. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Yes, we had jobs to do. 
under rowers, ministers, attendants, house managers, you know, they don't get honored for doing their job. They just get into trouble. I've told you over and over again, if you are a minister of the gospel, if you're a, a pastor, you don't get honored for doing your job because you're a house manager, you're, you're a servant, you're an under rower. You, you're not getting honor for doing the job. You're just going to get in trouble for doing it incorrectly. Okay, the Lord expects faithfulness from that, and faithfully taking, as I, I've used this illustration over and over to you, what the Lord is, has in his kitchen and delivering it to the table, and you don't mess it up along the way, see? Effective, effective church ministry is going to be involved with how faithfully you do that, okay? Not whether or not you're this dynamic order, not whether or not you, you, you have a personality that captures people's attention, and certainly not if you have a whole bunch of catchy videos and a whole bunch of little uh, things that you pulled out of the scriptures from somewhere and you made that really interesting for everybody, okay? It has nothing to do with any of that, but only how faithful you were to take the word of God and deliver it, see? I planted, he says, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth, see? Yes, we had jobs to do. Paul says, don't honor me, don't honor Apollos. We both had different ministries, different giftings, different approaches. Just honor God. And not only did we differ in our, our gifting and approaches, ultimately we're our nothing. That's where he says, verse 7. So then neither is the one who plants nor the one who waters anything, but God who causes the growth. When it comes right down to it, we are nothing. Let's just get right down to it, okay? When it comes to this ministry that's effective for eternity, the individual person is nothing. In, in, that, in that equation. I'm just a servant through whom you perhaps came to Christ. See, Paul says, or perhaps you grew in Christ, or, or perhaps you got in, involved in ministry through uh, that ministry, or, or you were empowered to do ministry through the fact that we gave out the gospel. Uh, or, I, you know, I have a job to do, see. I, I trust that I discharge as one who must give an account, but ultimately, if anything good happened, it was all the Lord. And then verse 80 says this, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. See, you don't need to honor us. We'll get our honor from whom? From the Lord. We have to give an account. See, verse, and, and that's really that, that fourth thing I want you to see about this, this, whole, uh, this whole deal as it relates to work of the ministry. See, you don't need to honor us. We get our honor from the Lord. We have to give an account. And so that's that fourth thing. To the extent that the minister found is sufficiency in the word of God and his sufficiency in the gospel, there's going to be promised reward. And that's the reality for every believer. If you keep on going in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, you'll find that everybody ha is measured by how they built on the foundation Christ put down. Remember, we went through all of that. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble. Everybody's measured. But in particular, as Paul talks about the minister, he talks about this. The sufficiency there. So uh, pastors, as Paul is referring to in 2 Corinthians 3.3, 3, and he looks to the same reward that 1 Peter 5.4 talks about, and when the chief shepherd appears, you receive the unfading crown of glory. Paul says, we'll wait, okay? Well, I, don't, I don't have to see, receive honor from you. I don't have to get back perhaps some affirmation that, you know, I was effective with you or whatever. And certainly, if we use Paul as an example, it doesn't appear from a human perspective that he influenced many people, uh, and that they would speak so positively about Paul. In fact, they speak negatively about him a lot, okay? He writes really strong letters, but he's pathetic when he comes to speak. That's basically what they say. So Paul says, listen, I, I'll wait, okay? You're this letter engraved on my heart. Whatever good that happened, the Lord did that. I get that. I get to rejoice that. That's my, that's my feedback, Okay? Knowing that you were changed, knowing that you grew, knowing that you got involved in ministry, you were empowered to do ministry, whatever it was, see? I'll wait. 
Peter says, I'll wait. Apollos, I'll wait. You know, every other elder who served or who has served, they understand this principle. I'll wait because it won't, you know, that, that reward won't be, that feedback won't be temporary. It won't be fading. It won't be judged by the whims of ungodly people and whatever the preferences were. See, uh, Paul says, I have a clear conscience. I've dealt with you faithfully. I don't have to write a letter of commendation for myself. You're my letter. It's a letter of redemption and spiritual growth. And it's, it, and, and the only reason there is a letter is because God was faithful in the power of the gospel. The letter is written on our hearts and it's a letter Jesus penned when people look at you they can see it. That's Paul. Paul's sufficient in that. He doesn't have to have any kind of positive feedback from the church. He's just good with where, where, what he knows is going to accompli- be accomplished through the ministry of the Word of God. Now look back at verse 2, your copy of first, uh, 2 Corinthians 3. You are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ. Before we move on here, I think it's important to note something, and I think there needs to be some exhortation here along with the encouragement. So, and I don't think I'm forcing anything on this passage. I, th- I think Paul, Paul has implied this uh, as he writes them. If you know the context of the church and you know the de- deals that were going on there for, in that first letter and all the, all the stuff he had to address, so I don't think it's forced to say the exhortation is if you're a believer, people will know that you're a believer. That's the no part, known and read by all men. And if that's true, then your life is being read by men and women, and that's the read part, okay? People know that you're a believer, and you're read by all men. So whatever it is that you do, see, whatever you say, wherever you go with your life, night or day, whatever you do with your family, your children, your single life, your job, I mean, you just fill it in, your free time, your social media time, whatever, guess what? Your life is on display. You are a letter of Christ known and read by all men. You know, we judge a doctor by his bedside manner. We, we judge a restaurant by its service. We judge an artist by the art that they produce. And men and women can judge a church by its members and the claims of Christ by those who say they follow them. That simple poem by Paul Gibbert where he says, you are writing a gospel, a chapter each day by deeds that you do, by words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithless or true, say, what is the gospel according to you? I think that captures the essence of the exhortation in that last part of the verse pretty well. Remember, Paul drew the Corinthian church's attention to this public aspect of Christianity when he said in 1 Corinthians 6, 6, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? And the question mark kind of incredulously saying, how in the world could you be doing that? Paul reminds him, you know, people are watching, and you're defaming the name of Christ. Or Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he says this, Walk, therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, employ you, here it is, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You know, if, and if Paul catches this, and we've said this before, and this is as you do your quiet time, when you read things like this, and Paul's exhorting something to walk in certain, a certain manner worthy of your calling, then there's a possibility that they are what? Not doing it. Right? That's the whole point of the exhortation. It's possible as a believer that you are a letter known and read by all men, and what they're reading is not very, is not very nice. Right? It doesn't make Christ look great. We've talked about this before. You know, people, believers who walk in disobedience to the Lord and find themselves in chastening, that doesn't make Christ look that great either. Did you know that? 
and you know people like this. They claim to be a believer, and they won't walk that way, and their life is just one mess after another, one difficulty after another. And you just, you just want to say, you know, you're not making the Lord look very great, are you? I mean, people say you're a believer, and your life's like that. I mean, you go from one tragedy to another. And you just, you just want to say, listen, you know, for your own good, wouldn't you like to walk where the, the Lord could bless you in the fullest? But not only that, it really makes the Lord look bad. I mean, remember Israel? There was a number of times the prophet said, Lord, when you, if you do this to them, what will the nation say? Well, the Lord brought his, his, his people out from the land of Egypt, and then he did this to them. And won't they, won't they defame your name? Probably. Does the Lord care? No. He's going to deal faithfully as unto his word with his people like he says he will. But, but, the, but when you think about it, you know, you're a letter of Christ known and read by all men. He says the same thing to the church in Colossae in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. He says this, um, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, verse 10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. What's the implication? That perhaps you're not, okay? Paul says, I'm going to pray for you that you'll do this. What's, what's the reality? Well, probably a mixed bag, right? To please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. There's your sure destination. You're qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. But today and tomorrow and however many days the Lord gives you, you're, you're this letter known and read by all men. What does that look like? What's the gospel look like according to you? See? Paul says, I'm praying that you'll be, you're going to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, walk in a manner that you would please him in all aspects. Is that your desire? See, because if your desire, beloved, is to walk with the Lord, to be pleasing with him in all aspects, yes. Are we going to do that perfectly? No, we're not. But is our desire to do that? Yes. Is our track then that way? Sure it is. Is that an intentional, volitional response to what the Lord says? Yes, it is. So in other words, God's commands are for us, not for him. If he says to do it, don't say to the Lord, oh Lord, make me patient. You know what? You have a volition, and the Holy Spirit is there with you, and the same book that everybody, every other believer has, you have. Do it. See? The power of the Holy Spirit will give you uh, the, the ability to do it, but you make that volitional decision to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to, to be pleasing to Him in all respects. Walk in a manner that you would bear fruit in every good work. See? And so forth. So I think you catch that. And that, that same exhortation to the Church of Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, this is the last one I'll, I'll show you. And we'll start to wrap up. So he says this, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. See, he, he's praying for them that they'll walk in a manner that's worthy. Why? Because perhaps they're not, or some of them aren't. You are our letter written in our hearts. So be aware, Paul says, that you are known and read by all men. Not only is it just this great encouragement to Paul that there has been life change, but it's also an exhortation in a kind way to remind them that you're being manifest, that you're a letter of Christ. That's your position. You're a letter of Christ permanently written and preserved because the power of the gospel is sufficient. That also must be lived out practically each and every day as people read this letter you're living out. See, You're our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Verse 3, being man, uh, manifested that you are a letter of Christ. And here's this last part, cared for uh, by us. E even in the difficulties, even in the fact that that letter might not be that sweet, and you, you might not be making Christ look that great, and whatever it is, see, 
Paul says, you're cared for by us. That word cared for is the verb diakoneo. We've seen that over and over again. It's where we get our word for the office of deacon. Minister to, served. You know, love is a verb. Paul has been demonstrating his love to them. Uh, the word is table waiter, domestic attendant. Jesus is the, is the writer. Paul is the attendant. We've seen that word over and over again. We know it must be in the very fabric of every effort for the kingdom, attending to one another. Remember, we saw this in First Peter a couple weeks ago, that um, attend to one another as good stewards. See, If you want to know what to do in the church, perhaps you don't have a ministry yet, uh, you should be involved somewhere, obviously, using your gifts and talents. But if you want to be a good steward of those gifts and talents, just start by attending to somebody. Just start by ministering to somebody's needs. Just look around you. Guess what? There'll be plenty. You'll have plenty of places to exercise that. Paul says, cared for by us. That's Paul's example, you know, in ministry. Love's a verb. You act on it. So, so Paul comes back to this topic of spiritual letters, his eyes on this letter from Jesus. And so... And then at this end, he's kind of doing this transformation and kind of bringing into stark relief the transformation that occurred that Paul could use as his letter of commendation forever. So he says this, look in your copy of God's word, verse three, written not with ink, so you are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, verse three, being manifested to you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, catch it, look there in your, in your copy, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The tablet of the human heart. As he describes this transformation that occurred, this, this sufficiency in the gospel, the seed of all you are, that's where the change occurred. The gospel is sufficient to change all you are. Written on the tablet of human heart. Everything springs from the heart in biblical terms. This is the true power and sufficiency of the gospel to redeem. The spirit of the living God writes the letter of Jesus on the source of the real you. And you know, way back in Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, you know, he's speaking to his people and and uh, Moses is on the mountain, and, and he finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai. He gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. God gave his law to his people. He writes them on a tablet of stone. This is Paul's illustration here, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of living of the human heart. See, God gives his law to his people. He writes it on tablets of stone. They didn't obey it. They couldn't keep it. Their hearts were not transformed. They weren't an example to the nations that they were supposed to be. They didn't follow what was there. The letter the nations read was one of chastening. It was one of the wages of sin, like we talked about just a few moments ago. This is what that letter looked like to the nations, okay? These two tablets of stone that they didn't obey. But then in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, as God speaks of the future of his people, he says this, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them, and on their heart, catch it, on their heart I will write it, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And then, then a series of promises began to come to the prophet in Ezekiel, in chapter 36, verse 24. He says, For I will take, take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I'll sprinkle clean water on you, you and you will be clean. And I'll cleanse you f uh, from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Catch this, moreover... I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you'll be careful to observe all my ordinances. So even more specific, what's on the horizon for us? That promise still stands out in the future for Israel. There's still going to be a time where the Lord is going to take away a heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And he's going to write his, his, uh, his law on their hearts, and they're going to be able to do it. And, and the, the nation rejected the Messiah when he came the first time, but some believed, and that promise began to be fulfilled partially at Pentecost. Uh, catch this, you know, 
a new heart, and the resident Holy Spirit, who will never leave, has recorded God's righteous demands upon the heart of each believer, a spiritual document that will never fade or be broken. It began to be fulfilled inside the church. Israel temporarily grafted out, as we saw in Romans. The, the church temporarily grafted in, and the Lord made it an example and made them jealous about how the Lord had changed the hearts of the Gentiles and given them a heart of flesh and written his law on it. See, A spiritual document that will never fade or be broken, the power of the Holy Spirit to obey. And Paul says, listen, this is, this is the transformation. This is this letter I have from Jesus engraved on my own heart that you were truly transformed. You are a letter written in our hearts. You known and read by all men. You are being manifested that you are the letter of Christ. You're cared for by us. You written not with ink, with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. Some marvelous section of passage. Perhaps you've read through it and just thought, you know, what did that mean? I hope it... I hope the richness of that as it connects with the sufficiency found in what the Lord has provided, his leadership, his word, and here the power of the gospel to change the lives completely. That's your sufficiency. That's where you find joy. When you're unsure what to do, when you, you're before that little class or wherever you're doing that Bible study, that small group, whatever, and you're just like, what do I, like, you're like, uh, what, do I, what do I do? What do I say? Listen, the leadership of Christ is sufficient. He still opens doors and... And the Great Commission is still in place. You know, the Word of God is sufficient. What it says, you just take it and give it. And let the Holy Spirit go to work. Because it's quick, and it's powerful, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces and divides the soul and spirit, the joint and marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God is that. Not your clever illustrations, not your hypothetical situations, not your own experiences. Listen, the Word of God is powerful to do that. And guess what? The Gospel is sufficient to change the heart and put a heart of flesh and write this marvelous law of God on this heart that can now obey with the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's the power, see? Not in what we do, not in what we can say, not our own creative illustrations, but what the Lord can do as you have charge of those ministries that you do. All right? Let's bow and be dismissed in a word of prayer, if you would. We're out of time. Lord, I thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. I thank you for the blessing it is to read it, to study it, to break it down as you would have us do. We pray again over and over that your Holy Spirit will make a quick, help us to be quick to understand. Help us to see the places where uh, these, these passages apply to us. Help us to be encouraged, as Paul was, even in difficult ministry and hardship, that he found this sufficiency and a very a great comfort and rest and joy in that, the fact that you were sufficient to lead and your word was sufficient and the gospel sufficient to change lives. Of course, with our group here, perhaps you're here. I guess my question is, do you have a new heart? Resident Holy Spirit, never leave. Recorded God's righteous demands on your heart. Do you find yourself prompted to walk in such a way as pleasing to the Lord? your desire for his word, for his church, for his people, for ministry, give yourself away? So if the answer is no, if your inclination of your heart continually is the world, it's the flesh, and satisfying those things, can I, may I propose to you that you don't know the one who changes through the power of the gospel? But you can. You can. You know, coming to church and, and just kind of following somebody else's example or, or you liking how you feel when you come, you know, these are, these are not... This is not salvation, see. Salvation is found in a relationship with Jesus.
confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. That means he is who he said he is. He came and did all that he said he came to do. Lord means he's the boss. You're willing to confess that you want to make him complete and sole authority in your life. That is the beginning of the right heart attitude for salvation. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You've submitted your will, your desires, your plans for the future, sufficiency you find in anything else. It's all found in him. He is Lord. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart. God has raised him from the dead. The only thing that can deal with your sin is the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection three days later. That's the only thing that will deal with your sin. Confess that he's Lord and then that he has paid the price for your sin. So you are a sinner. You admit that. You admit that what you've done has been displeasing to the Lord no matter how good you may think it was or how insignificant the, the sin may have been or whatever it is, even if nobody knows about it and you kind of live this life that looks like you're a Christian, you're coming to church, you're doing the thing. But if your sin hasn't been dealt with, there's no relationship. But through the mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead, and you'll be saved. If you prayed that prayer today, you can pray it right where you sit. You know the heart attitude. I just gave you that. You know what has to occur, and then the Lord does the rest. It'd be our joy to know that. If you, before you leave today, take the response card out from the chair in front of you and let us know you came to faith today, or you'd like to know more about it. And for those who are born again, you have Confess Jesus as Lord, believed in your heart, God has raised him from the dead. You're born again, so what kind of letter are you? Known and read by all men. As you go through your life on a regular basis, are you making the gospel look great? Are you a liability? Are you magnifying Jesus? Or making him look bad? Wonderful joy of Knowing Christ as our Savior as he forever sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you. Confess with your mouth your, your sins and he's constantly washing. Make a recommitment today to walk in such a manner that uh, we're pleasing to him. Seeking to be pleasing to him in everything. Are you doing those things that Paul encouraged the church to do? Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk in a manner that you would please him in all respects. Walk in a manner that you'd bear fruit for every good work. Listen, this is the Lord's desire for you, and he's empowered you to do it by the Holy Spirit, and so you can be doing that as you're, if you're not, if you're not uh, quenching the Holy Spirit's work in your life. So lots of ways to start here. I don't pretend to know every situation that you may be going through. I would just say um, there's plenty here to think about and make some commitments to do things that will be pleasing to him. And it would be our joy to help you with that if, if you... We desire that. Lord, we thank you today for the work you do by your word, that it goes out and does not return back to you without accomplishing what you've sent it to do. And so it's the same today, as we just rely on your word and what Paul has said, which is still uh, relevant for today. And Lord, I pray that you'll just work through it and your power. Thank you for just a few minutes later, we'll, we'll have some fellowship together over some food, breaking bread, and kind of a love uh, fellowship. We thank you for that. We thank you for uh, all the joy that comes from that, for the joy of being together for this a little glimpse of heaven that it is. Lord, we pray that you bless that food to our body, and we thank you for it. For the ministries that are going on downstairs, thank you for them, for our nursery workers and our children's church workers who faithfully serve. Lord, we're grateful for your, uh, your movement in their life, that they might find a place to give themselves away. Find, help us to all find, as this new year begins, and we're all back from vacations and all that, Lord, help us to find a place to plug in, where we might be able to give our lives away and see 
uh, have the joy of having written on our heart and engraved permanently uh, the joy of changed lives because we were sufficient in you, uh, starting by obedience and then in your word and in your leadership and in the gospel. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.